Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. If your brother sin against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have already gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Good morning, everybody. Between last week and this week, it's like the sermon text leaked or something that we're going to talk about (laughs) church discipline this morning. Well, I want to start out talking about this passage, uh, noting that at the beginning of the year in January, we started in the Gospel of Matthew, and from January through about May, the first week of May, we got through 17 chapters, and we took a pause for the summer, and now we're going to pick up in chapter 18 and go uh, all the way up to Advent in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to be approaching the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, his teaching with the disciples, and it just so happens that this is the text that we're hopping back into this morning. You know, Christians are kind of like magnets. And I mean this in two senses. We do hope that Christians are like magnets for the world. We hope that Christians are people that people love to be around. But even within the church, Christians are like magnets in the sense that if you orient them the right way, they stick together and they go together. And you can build something really strong and cohesive together. But the flip side is also true, that if Christians are oriented towards each other in the wrong way, they can actually repel each other. And this is probably theoretical for most of you in here, but I've seen this happen with Christians before. It's not a surprise that if you get Christians together who basically they don't understand what God has given us for each other, they don't, um, they don't value what God has given us in community, they can be the most repelling people to try to put into a group together. And sadly, this sometimes happens among Christians. And so what we want to talk about this morning is Jesus orienting a group of believers in such a way that they are like magnets that go together. They're, they're like a strong bond of a community that we all want to be a part of. And in the Gospel of Matthew, if, I'll give you a quick refresher, or if you haven't been here for any of this series, the wonderful thing about the Gospel of Matthew is it is a disciple's gospel. In the early church, it was the gospel that was given to help people understand what it means to follow Jesus, to be like him, to live in community with other people, to live as a church together. It was the gospel that was put first in your New Testament, not because it it was first written, but because it was the most popular gospel in the early church. When you get into the opening chapters of Matthew, what you realize is he has constructed his stories about Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in a way that is helping us understand what it means to be a disciple. And a disciple is basically somebody who learns from and emulates their master. We as Christians, and and in fact the word Christian means that our end goal is not just to become the best version of ourselves, it's to become as like Christ as we can possibly be. In fact, Christian was originally a derogatory term used of the early church in the book of Acts to say those are just like little Christs. They're like little 
images of Christ that are walking around. But, but they meant that in a bad way, and the Christians were like, we love that. We're Christians. We're little pictures of Jesus for the world to see. And so in this gospel, the goal is that you and I would learn, as Matthew leads us to know more about Jesus, to actually become like him to do the things that he did, to have the character that he has, to become little Christs in the community around us. And as the gospel goes on, it moves from kind of the personal understanding of who Jesus is and what it is for us to follow him to what it's like when you get a bunch of Christians together and how you live in a community together. So you might almost say that the gospel of Matthew moves from being disciples of Jesus to learning what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is the major theme in the gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is here. And if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, you can be a part of this new community that actually looks radically different than the surrounding world. Maybe the best example of this is Christians, by following Jesus, it's almost like learning a new language. Not, not just because it's kind of an insider thing, but just because the things that you've done and the way you've viewed the world and the way you've put self first and the way that you've oriented yourself to other people actually needs to be different once you come to Christ because his priorities are different, his kingdom is different, his citizenship is different. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the earth are opposed to each other. So it's almost like when you come to Jesus you're learning to speak a foreign language. And, and if you take this metaphor, speaking a language one hour a week is not a good way to learn a language. And most of us could attest to this because you were forced to take a language in high school or college to get some credit hour. And if you haven't kept it up, chances are you can't speak any of that language now. Like I look back and I am so, it's so unfortunate that I was forced to take language from kindergarten all the way up through high school, and I know next to none of it now. French, Spanish, I can only do the textbook, hello, how are you? That's it. And, and, and you come to find out, if you ever go to one of these areas, the hello, how are you they teach you in the book is not what people say. You stick out like a sore thumb if you go and say that kind of stuff to native speakers. But some of us treat our Christian life like we speak an hour a week in here, we talk in here, we get conversant in kind of these textbook phrases here, and that should do us to live the whole Christian life outside of here. But everybody knows if you're going to learn a language, what you need is immersion. That's the best way to learn a language is to go and every day be dependent on speaking that language with other people. To go and put yourself in a situation where that's what the people speak. That's what they say, and it, and, it, and it gets you out from looking it up in a dictionary to the rough and tumble of, I didn't study this in the textbook, but I'm just rolling with it. I think I know about half of what you're saying, and I'm going to say something back, and then they're going to help me correct it. That's how you learn a language. And my contention for us this morning from this passage is, this is also how you learn to live in the kingdom of God. One hour a week, two hours a week, three hours a week will make very little difference in your life if you're not trying to speak fluently with people during the week. In fact, the language that we learn in the Gospels is the language of grace and forgiveness. Repentance of sin, forgiveness from other people, and restoration of a relationship. And the only way to learn to speak that language is to actually have to go through it yourself. 
You know, the amazing thing, though, is the Bible gives us all these cases where people start to speak this language, and people start to see it, and they say, that is so different than what I'm used to hearing. Like when you're around somebody who's speaking in a language that you don't know, your ear perks up immediately to hear the sounds are different, the intonation is different, the cadence is different. There's something about that that catches your ear. You know, in Acts chapter 2, when the disciples stand up and begin to preach, what was the amazing thing that catches everybody's ear? It was that they were speaking in their mother tongue. It was like these Jews who should be speaking Aramaic are now speaking to all the people who are there from across the world. And these people hearing this said, what should we do to be saved? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in a very puzzling section of the New Testament, we don't teach upon this very often because it's talking about the gift of speaking in tongues and prophecy. But if you'll remember at the end of that chapter, what happens is it says, you know, the gifts are so that you can build up the body of Christ by speaking to each other. But, but actually there's something else that's intended in these gifts. At the end of chapter 14, it says, when somebody comes in and they don't know the language, they don't, they don't speak this language, and they hear about their life and their sins and the hope that's before them, they'll fall on their face and say, God is among these people. See, the discomfort of learning to speak a new language, and today the language we're talking about is forgiveness and confrontation over sin. The ability to learn to do that and speak that way is not a repellent to other people. The kind of life that we can model together as Christians in the kingdom of heaven should be something where people see that and they say, God must be among these people. I've got to go and be among them because God is there. So as we get into our text this morning about how to confront people over sin, I want to point out two things that maybe will get us back in the thought of the Gospel of Matthew, and will set up what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 18. The first thing is, the Gospel actually teaches us what to do with sin. So one of the big things that we're learning in the Gospel of Matthew and in in the entire Bible is that God has designed the universe in such a way that we are not left wondering what to do with sin. In fact, if you get one thing from the Bible, you should get this. God has made a way to deal with sin. There is one way to deal with sin, to be honest about it, to confess it, to take it to God, to repent of it, to be forgiven of it, and to be restored into relationship with him. That is the essential gospel message. Jesus came to deal with your sin, with my sin. We're not left wondering what to do with sin anymore. We've got a solution for sin. The death of Jesus so that God can forgive us, our penalty's been paid, and we can be brought into the family of God. That gospel message is the same message for how we deal with sin amongst each other. So so I say it's like learning to speak a language in the sense that like we come on Sundays and we know that Jesus has dealt with our sin. But do we have that down deep in us enough to understand that's also the way we're supposed to deal with sin with other people? The mechanism is exactly the same. God has showed us, through Jesus, what to do with any sin. Big, small, catastrophic, public, private. We know what to do with sin. And the thing that's amazing about this is there are a lot of other temporary fixes for sin. You can hide it. You can ignore it. You can convince somebody that you're actually right. You can build up a, conscience, a wall against your conscience so you don't ever think about it. You can do a million things with your sin, but there's only one way to really deal with it. 
And God, in, in his infinite wisdom, has set up the world in such a way And this is mind-blowing for us to think about this, but he has set up the world in such a way that to be forgiven and restored is somehow greater than to never have sinned in the first place. I don't know how God thought of this, but seeing his humanity that he was going to create, he knew from before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians, that his son would die to ransom people from sin and bring them back to himself. And that's the world that God created, that somehow it's actually better for us to know what it is to be forgiven and to be restored than to be left in a situation where we just earned everything on our own merit. There's something stronger, deeper, and more powerful in a reconciled relationship than in a relationship that never had any conflict in it to begin with. The second thing that we learn about the gospel here that is pertinent to what we're talking about this morning is that all Christians are called to be peacemakers because of what God has done in our hearts through Jesus Christ. So it's not just the fact that God has done something through Jesus for us. And we have this dimension, this vertical dimension with God and our lives are fine and that doesn't influence anything else. The Bible is so clear that unity among people is a gift to the church and it's also a gift for the church. We are called to unity, we've been given unity and the way that we do that is by being peacemakers with each other. There's no such thing as a Christian who has everything right with God but never works on anything with anybody else in their life. The two commandments that Jesus says are the greatest that summarize the whole law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't compartmentalize your love for God and never love your neighbor. And you actually can't love your neighbor the way that you should love them until your love is directed at God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the Beatitudes, in chapter 5, Jesus opens his first block of teaching by describing the kind of world that we want to live in as Christians. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But there's two of these Beatitudes that go perfectly with what he's going to teach us in Matthew chapter 18. In fact, you can almost read the Sermon on the Mount, as an index or as a table of contents for everything else Jesus is going to teach in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who long for righteousness. But maybe most importantly, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I want to focus for a minute on what what it means to be a peacemaker. Because most of the time we say peacemaker, we think of the people that are just kind of temperamentally peaceful or conflict avoidant. You know, certain people, whether however you want to slice this, they're nines on the Enneagram or they're the type of personality that just, they never have conflict with people. And that's the funny thing is, uh, you know, when you're in a family, you realize that certain people are just wired differently. My brother Carson, for example, is our middle brother. And it's like every time we talk, we're like, oh, I know Tucker, your youngest brother, but I haven't heard of Carson. I'm like, yeah, that's because Carson never has conflict with anyone. Carson, Carson never has made an enemy in his life. He is one of those people that if you put him in a group, the group will cohere together because he's one of those glue people. But Jesus isn't saying everybody has to be like, 
that because what is sometimes a struggle for those people is they're so conflict avoidant that it's impossible to make peace. See, sometimes peacemaking is difficult confrontational work. So Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the temperamentally peaceful. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And every Christian is called with whatever personality you've been given, with whatever disposition you've been given, with whatever gifts you've been given, you are being called to be a part of the peacemaking effort of the kingdom of heaven. So peace is actually not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness and fullness. See, all throughout the Old Testament, God brings peace. The word in Hebrew for peace is shalom. Most people are familiar with the word shalom. It's this all-encompassing vision of the world being the way it should be. It's, it's more than just, oh, there's not anything bad happening. It's the fullness of what you were created to enjoy is present. That God has brought his presence and his joy and his sustenance so fully that we are in a state of fullness in him. And what Christians have been called to do, Paul says, is we've become ambassadors for the shalom of God. We have been created to be new people, and now we are from the embassy of the kingdom of heaven, taking God's peace and making peace all over the earth with all people. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so we are making our appeal to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to one another. Peacemaking is actually an active, difficult part of every Christian life because it means that we are doing what God has done for us. We are taking that and extending it to other people. So I would say maybe the process of peacemaking requires us to have steel in our spines and grace in our hearts. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The process we see in Matthew chapter 18 is often talked about as the process of church discipline, which sounds kind of ominous, you know, church discipline. And I want to get to the point where we talk about that, but in the beginning, actually, Matthew 18, it's all about what to do when somebody has sinned against you. And this shouldn't be reserved for big, you know, corporate, all the church is concerned about this big scandal or this big sin. This should be in the rough and tumble of everyday life. Because I hate to admit it, the people that you're closest to are oftentimes going to be the people you get to see the most of their sin. In your family, in your marriage, in your home, in your workplace, that's where you're actually going to see the rough and tumble of life. That's where you're going to actually have to put Matthew 18 into practice is in your interpersonal relationships one-on-one. See, the, the, the process opens with a fundamental principle that's everywhere in Scripture. Sin should be identified. Sin should be identified. Everywhere you see the Bible talk about sin, it says it should be identified. It should be identified to God. It should be identified to the person it's committed against, or if somebody's committed against you, the person that committed it against you. Sin should be identified. In fact, the first step to dealing with any sin is it must be identified. There is nowhere in Scripture where you can find a sin that just goes away on its own. It is always dealt with in some way or another. Now, sometimes people do things to you that you don't like that are not sin. And for those, the Bible says it is a glory to overlook an offense. 
It is a glory for us to have so much of God's love and grace and peace in our hearts that somebody does something wrong to us or somebody does something we don't like and we're like, I don't know that that's really a sin thing. It's just, I didn't like that or just maybe I read that wrong. That is fine to overlook that. But when somebody has committed a sin against you or you commit a sin against somebody else, there is no place in the Bible that says, you know what, just avoid it, never talk about it with them, just have that awkward relationship, and it will be fine in the long run. The Bible never presents sin that way. In fact, God doesn't deal that way with our sin. Your sins are going to be paid for one way or another. They're either going to be paid for by Jesus on the cross, or they're going to be paid for by you when you stand before him and you're judged, depending on what you have done. And the only outcome is, is not, can we just pretend like that never exists? The only outcome is to say, paid in full by Jesus Christ. That's it. So the first thing for our conflict with each other is if it's sin, it's got to be identified. It's got to be identified. This is actually the way that the gospel gets down into the deepest places of who we are. We can, we can, on the one hand, say, I have to have my sins forgiven by God. They have to be confessed and repented of, and then turn around and say, but that doesn't apply to anybody else. Jesus' point here is that relationship with others is modeled off of the relationship with God. Because of what God has done in Jesus, we're actually called to identify the sins with other people. So notice in this text, in verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two witnesses. So you'll notice a trajectory here. The ideal situation is somebody sins against you or you sitting against somebody else, and that person comes and says, hey, this was sin, I need to bring it up with you, and you say, I am so sorry, you're right, it was, I should not have done that, please forgive me and restore the relationship. That's, that's the ideal scenario, is that it would be between two people Sin would have occurred, you identify it, you talk about it, you restore the relationship, nobody else ever has to know. That's the ideal scenario. One-on-one, -on -one, we work this out, we forgive, and the relationship between those two people is stronger moving forward than it was even moving up to that point. That's, that's the ideal. Most of us, though, have been around long enough to have encountered a situation where it doesn't go quite like that. You know, on the one hand, maybe you go to somebody and you say, hey, this, this, what happened, this was sinful, or usually it's not even putting it in that language, but hey, when you did this, it, whatever, hurt my feelings, it, uh, you know, you should not have done it, it was wrong, however we start to label it, and the person's like, no, it wasn't, or this, this veiled apology that you sometimes get, I'm sorry that hurt your feelings. Well, what, I mean, what are you apologizing for there? my sensitivity, you know, to this issue. Whatever it is, sometimes that person and you, you don't see it the same way at all. They either don't think it was sin or they don't think it was a big deal or they maybe think it is sin, but they don't care. They don't want to do anything about it. That's when it says, okay, the next rung of this would be you need to take two or three people and these are not like your yes men hype guys that you get together to go and ambush this person. This is two or three people that could stand as witnesses in a court of law. Because this is all predicated on the system that the Jews were using in the Old Testament, where if you were going to have somebody who was going to be punished for sin, you needed the witness of two or three people to be able to do that. This, what this creates is you can't just all of a sudden say that somebody did something to you and pretend like everybody else is going to go along with that. The system in the Old Testament was bring, the, bring people who can actually testify to this, people who can be 
arbiters, people who can be neutral, people who can have a spiritual interest in what's going on. And maybe that way, all of you together can work this out in a group. Again, the ideal scenario here would be you have one person come, and if it doesn't get resolved, you bring in some neutral mediating parties, and you realize what happened, and both parties agree, and the relationship is restored stronger than it ever was before. If you look at the whole scope of Scripture, what's interesting is every time something like this is talked about, the goal is restoration. And that's the second part of this process is, yes, sin needs to be identified, but it's identified in the route to repentance and the restoration of the relationship. Now, if the first one hits maybe a little bit more towards the person who committed the sin, right, because they're the one that's being confronted, this second aspect hits so much more for the person who's bringing the offense. See, see there is, there's nothing worse than having somebody bring something against you when you know they don't have your best interest in mind. They do not want a restored relationship with you. All they want is to win, score some points, make you look bad. And the Bible says that's actually not a biblical response to sin. If the reason you're going to somebody and talking to them, if you're confronting them about their sin, is so that you can talk to other people about it or make them look bad or bring it up to have something over them for the future, that's actually the wrong mindset to bring when you're confronting somebody over sin. The goal in every confrontation, whether it's God with us or us with other people in the Bible, is that we hope at the end of this the relationship is restored and reconciled and stronger than it was before. So if you notice, if you just zoom out, Matthew gives us instruction on what to do no matter who's committed the sin or where you fall in this problem. On the one hand, if you've sinned against somebody, in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, it says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, i.e., you remember that you sinned against your brother, leave your gift at the altar Go to that person, be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. So if you've sinned against somebody, Matthew's like, here's what you do. You go humbly, you confess it, you repent, and then you come back to worship. Here in our text in Matthew 18, he says, if somebody sinned against you, you go, you bring it up humbly, you hope for restoration, you restore the relationship, and then you move on with a stronger relationship. So sinning or sinned against, we got that covered. But on the restoration theme in Galatians chapter 6, it adds another layer. If you are somebody who is one of those two or three witnesses, here's how you should conduct yourself. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, If someone is among you is caught in sin, let those who are spiritual restore him with a spirit of gentleness. So, I mean, you don't have many bases to go to if you're looking to really make somebody feel and look bad here because if you've been sinned against, it's covered. If you sin against somebody, it's covered. If you're drawn in because you're a person who needs to be a part of this, it's covered. The goal is re restoration in every single one of these scenarios. It's very similar in Galatians 6, verse 1, it says, let those who are spiritual go and restore the person. And we were talking about this in our small group this week. The word restoration is a pretty common word, but, but what's interesting is in the Gospel of Matthew, you see it used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, where it says, uh, James and John and Peter and Andrew were mending their nets with their father. That word mending is the word restoration. 
Same word. You can use it in both contexts. It's one of those where it has a technical sense and it has an interpersonal sense. But the technical sense should tell us something about what restoration means. It's like a net that's been torn. And something has gone through it. And now, in order to bring it back to fulfill its purpose, you have to tie all the loose ends back together. See, restoration is not primarily a judicial process. In fact, sin is not primarily a judicial process. It's a relational process. The problem with sin is not that there's this abstract ethereal law in heaven and you broke it and now the high court has condemned you to death. The problem is sin is a personal rebellion against the God of the universe and there is no way for you to be back in right relationship with him outside of what Jesus has done to bring us personally back to God. And the same is true with other people. The problem when people sin against you is that there is some damage done outside of the relationship, but the core, especially in the church, the core problem is there's a hole in the net. There's a hole in the net. The people that you are supposed to depend on, the people you're supposed to serve alongside, the people you're supposed to use your gifts to build them up, and they're supposed to be building you up, all of a sudden there's a breach in this relationship. And the goal of restoration is to go and tie up the loose ends, mend the net, Call sin, sin, repent of it, be forgiven, and then swear off your ability to get revenge on that person by truly forgiving them. Bring the net back into a stronger condition than it was before. That's biblical restoration. So as this process escalates, we got to keep in mind here that the goal really is to do whatever it takes to bring the person back into fellowship with the person that they've sinned against. And this is where, when you get to the end of this process, in verse 17 it says, and basically if they, if they refuse to listen to these two or three witnesses, if you've done everything you can, then you need to bring it to the church. Now, what, what he means by this here is typically interpreted as you should bring it to the elders of the church. Why is that? It's because the elders have been tasked with the spiritual oversight and leadership of the church. There is a break in the net that now is so inflamed or so large and is involving so many people that it actually threatens the unity of the church itself. And who should be more concerned about the unity of the church than anybody else? The elders. Not that other people are not concerned about this, but, but they're the ones who have been tasked by God to ensure the spiritual life and vibrancy of the church. And it says, bring it to the church and if you bring it to them and the person still will not repent, then you should treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. See, the thing is, when it comes to the elders, the elder's job in discipline, church discipline, is primarily restorative because everybody's goal is primarily restorative. The goal of the elders isn't to say, we decree you know, by the Almighty God that now you are a tax collector and a Gentile. The goal of the elders is to say, what can we do now that this situation has gotten this big where we can restore the relationship over what's occurred. It's sad to me that most people think about church discipline as a punitive act like shunning or excommunication when most of what the elders should be doing in church discipline is mediating and reconciling between two parties. In fact, that's what the Bible says the ideal scenario for the elders is that they would always be engaged in bringing people back together to mend the nets. So what happens if none of this works? Okay, so none of it works. You go to them, 
They, you know, stop answering your calls. They don't admit that what they've done is sin. You bring in some neutral parties. Hey, these people love you. These are not just people on my side, but let's look at this. We talk through it, and they're like, you know what? Disagree. I didn't sin against you. It's, or I did, but I don't need to do anything about it. And so you say, okay, we got to get elders involved. And all of a sudden, the elders are talking about it, and you're all sitting in a room together, and you're like, we're just at loggerheads. We're not going to do this. The sad thing is what happens usually when that happens is somebody just goes to a different church. That's, that's the sad thing is they just go somewhere where they don't have to deal with whatever this is. But the last stage that the, the, the Bible says that we should do is you should treat that person like a Gentile or a tax collector. This is interesting. What does it mean to treat somebody like a Gentile or a tax collector? Think for a second about what Jesus does with Gentiles and tax collectors. You know, all through the gospel it says that Jesus is a friend of Gentiles and tax collectors. He's a friend of sinners. And what he's typically doing with these people is he's having a relationship with them in the goal that they will come to believe the gospel. So here's the piece that makes all of this make sense at the end of this passage is to treat somebody as a Gentile or a tax collector is essentially the way we would say treat them like an unbeliever. Because at this point, if you are incapable of repenting of your sin, you're not a Christian. You need to become a Christian. You need to learn to repent, not to these other people. You need to learn to repent before God. If you can't repent of sin, you actually cannot partake in what God has done through Jesus Christ. And so what, what this passage is saying is on either side, if you get to the point where you realize this person actually cannot repent of their sins, or what sometimes happens is when you get up to this level, the person repents of their sin and the other person refuses to forgive them. If the person cannot forgive, they may not be a Christian. At this point, what we're saying is there's a light on the dash that is so important that we move from restoring relationship within the body to beginning to pray and act like we need a relationship within the body. We need this person to actually come and know the Lord and be forgiven. And so it's not actually a shunning and excommunicating kind of deal. It's a, this person now needs to be evangelized. Like you've you've got to go back to square one and say, you can't fix something that doesn't actually exist. Now we're praying that a relationship with God would exist. Now we're hoping that we can actually come back to this scenario later when this person repents and comes to God and now is given the unity of the Spirit with other believers. So this is uh, an encouragement to us and a warning at this final stage that actually the ability to repent and the ability to forgive is what proves that we know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I'll tell you, this is obvious when you go into the next section. Jesus, we, this is where we ended in April or May, is with this parable of the unforgiving servant. See, Jesus tells this whole thing about discipline and reconciliation, and then on the end he says, let me, let me illustrate to you how this works. The kingdom of heaven, the community of believers is like this. It, it might be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, And when he began to settle, he brought one in who owed him 10,000 talents, which is like a roundabout way of saying an infinite amount of money. This is like 10,000 years worth of wages, something that nobody could ever repay. And the master, when he brings him in, he, he can't pay. And so the master says, well, the punishment for that is for you to be sold into slavery, you and your family, until the debt is paid off. And the servant 
falls on his knees, and he's imploring the master, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything back. And out of pity for him, the master says, you're released from the debt. It's done, paid for. You never have to work for it again. It's done. It's wiped off the books. It is forgiven. And then that same servant goes out, and he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. This is like a hundred dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. And the servant falls down before him and pleads with him, have patience, I will, I will pay you, just give me some time. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went to the master. This actually follows the way that this passage in Matthew 18, right before it goes. When they see what's happened, they've been involved with it. They can't make any sense of this. They go to the master, and the master comes and sees what has taken place, and he summons him and says to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy upon you? See, the way that God has designed us to function is he has forgiven us a a debt that is insurmountable. We We can never repay it. We can never make it right. We can never earn our favor with him. And he has wiped the debt clean by having his son die to pay for it. And us now going to other people and not being able to repent of our sins and not being able to forgive other people is like this servant who goes to somebody who owes him $100, which is nothing compared to the billions that he owed to the master and say, I'm going to hold you to every last penny of this. It's like when Jesus tells the disciples when the woman comes in and washes his feet, he says, he who is forgiven much loves much. He's forgiven little loves little. If we can get the message of the gospel down into our hearts and understand that the only way to deal with sin is to repent of it and be forgiven of it, then what Jesus is saying is that will show up in your life. That will show up in your relationships. That will show up when other people sin against you and you sin against them. You know what to do with sin because God has showed you what to do with it. Don't forget that the gospel message is not just something between you and God. It's a model for how to deal with sin in every area of your life. And what Jesus says at the end of this parable is essentially what he's saying at the end of this teaching. And you treat that person like a Gentile or a tax collector because at the end of the day, they're showing they don't understand the gospel in the first place. We have been forgiven, and we have been given a mission of forgiveness. So I'll end by saying this as the band comes back up and we continue to worship. It's easy for us to forget in our everyday life what we know to be true in our hearts. In fact, there's a kind of a controversial anthropologist named Margaret Mead in the 1920s, and she was doing this research in Polynesia. So think like northeast of Australia, there's this area of about a thousand islands. And so she's going to these islands and she's kind of trying to observe these cultures that have been untouched by the West. And she found all kinds of interesting stuff and a lot of controversial stuff. But one of the things that she found that's really interesting for us is these people had originally gotten to these islands by boat. They had originally built boats and they had gone to these islands. And by the time it got to their grandkids and their grandkids' kids, They had forgotten how to build boats that could make the journey that they themselves had made 
hundreds of years earlier to this island. In fact, one of the big problems is when they got there with these boats, they used them to go way out into the ocean and fish for big fish. And, and as they had, the boats had gotten worse and worse and worse, they had basically become landlocked, and now they were dealing with hunger and starvation because they could no longer fish. And, and, and the amazing finding was that you have something that was innate for a moment in the culture. They got there because they knew how to make these boats, but they'd forgotten how to build them over time. And I think for this morning, the reminder for us is the whole reason you got to where you are now is because you could repent of your sin and have a restored relationship with Jesus. Don't forget how to do that with other people as a Christian. In fact, it is the mechanism that makes the church hold together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you, you have made a way for us that we, we could never have done on our own. Lord, you, you have made us in such a way that even though our instincts would say the best thing to do is to hide and to cover and to deflect, Lord, the greatest thing we could do is to be honest, to bring things into the light, just like we've done with you through your son, Jesus to be forgiven, and to be restored. Father, help us to be people who are peacemakers. Father, when we're sinned against, to humbly work for restoration. Father, when we sin, to humbly confess and repent of our sins. Father, by doing that, I pray that you would transform our church and our community and our relationships to be so different and so fresh and so life-giving that people would look and say, I, I've got to have that. I've got to know the God that they serve. Lord, make us salt and light because we know what to do with sin, because we know how to be forgiven, because we know how to issue the forgiveness that you've given us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. This morning, as we stand and continue in worship, we're gonna take communion together. You know, communion, we celebrate every...